Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, guess what book of the Bible we're in today? We're in Mark. If you don't know that, that means you're new. We are in the 41st sermon in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark that we're calling The Simple Gospel, where we take however long it takes to study the book of Mark, where we're going to get everything out of it that we can. We're going to spend time to learn who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what it means for us to live our lives for Jesus. And today, uh, 40 weeks in, we're in Mark chapter 10. But because some of you are new, let me go ahead and catch you up to speed. Here at Redemption, our favorite way to preach the Bible is called expositional preaching. Okay, that's a big fancy college word. It cost me $20,000 and four years to learn it. Okay, so let me go ahead and teach it to you. Here's what expositional means. It means we say whatever the Bible says. That's exactly what it means. So do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say expositional preaching. You ready? Expositional preaching. Look at you guys. Y'all sound so smart. Don't say that I never told you anything. Uh, Here's what it means. We just say what the Bible says. So at Redemption, we love the Bible. We believe the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative, infallible, living, written, very word of God. So we do whatever we can to learn what this book says. So that means that for us, we pick a book of the Bible and then we just preach that book. So we start in chapter one, verse one, and then we go verse by verse until we get to the very end or until Jesus comes back. And today, because he hasn't come back, we're back in Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to share with you a few reasons why I love expositional preaching before we dive into the message today. The first reason I love it is because it makes my job easy. Right? I don't have to worry about what am I going to preach on next week. I know I'm going to preach on Mark 10. I don't have to go through Facebook or watch Fox News and figure out what current events to make relevant for you. No, I just preach whatever the Bible says. So today we're in Mark 10, 1 through 12. Next week, guess where we're going to be? Mark 10, starting in verse 13. 13 through 17. You're going to be the next week? Mark 10, 18. And on and on and on until November 8th, 2020. 72 sermons later, I'm going to finally get to preach Mark chapter 16, verse 20, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and the great commission of his disciples. And then we're going to close the book of Mark and then we're going to start another book of the Bible. That's just the way we do it because it makes my job easy. The second reason we do it is because it helps you learn how to read the Bible for yourself. Let's just be honest. The Bible can be a little confusing. Anybody ever find the Bible confusing? You're like, I don't really know what this means. And so when you come and you listen to a sermon, sometimes it can be confusing. When the pastor's jumping around from Old Testament, New Testament, here's a verse, turn with me to Revelation, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, turn with me to the book of Job, and the Lord smote poor Job. And you're like, what, what? How did we get there? And you're like, I have no clue what this means. What we do is we just stay in the text. And so when you go home with your friends and your family, maybe a husband, wife, sitting down with your kids and our entire church all together, we're in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And it helps you learn how to read the Bible in context and then have conversations with your family. It helps you learn to read the Bible. And then the third reason that we love it is because it actually holds me accountable as your pastor. You need to know that I'm going to be accountable before God for the words and the sermons that I preach. On Judgment Day, when I stand before the Lord, he's going to pull up the iTunes archive and he's going to say, all right, Byron, let's talk about those messages you preach to them redemption people. And so then I have to give an account for the words that I say. But I'm also going to be accountable for you that I'm accountable before God for you to preach the full counsel of God's word. Not the parts that I like, not the parts that make you warm, fuzzy, and feely inside, not the parts that draw a big crowd. I do not get the right to skip over or to pick and choose what I want to preach. And so if I were to come and say, we're starting a new series, turn with me to Mark 10, verse 13, we're talking about children. You were like, wait, he skipped one through 12. 
See, it holds me accountable. It helps you hold me accountable to the words that I preach. Now, inevitably, when we do expositional preaching, you're going to come across some difficult subjects. You're going to come across some things that pastors normally don't like to preach and congregation members normally don't like to hear. But if it's in the book, that means it's God's best for us. If it's in the book, that means God wants us to know what it says because he loves us, he cares for us, and he has wisdom for us. If it's in the book, it's for our good. And sometimes we hit difficult subjects. And today's going to be one of those days. If you have your Bible, so in Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, and the sermon title is this, Jesus and Divorce. Today, we're going to be talking about divorce. Now, I want you to remember, these are Jesus's words. The most kind, the most gracious, the most compassionate, the most loving person who ever walked on the face of the planet is going to teach us today about divorce. And remember that not only is he the most compassionate, he's also the most honest and wise. And so if it's in here, it means it's for our good. The sermon title today is called Jesus and Divorce. Now, before we get started, do me a favor. If you are single, can you do me a favor and raise your hand? If you're single, not married. Single, not married, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, now look around. Those are your options. (laughs) Three for $10 at Chili's. Take them to lunch. Guys, good luck. <laughs> Ladies, good luck. You'll need it. All right, all you singles, keep your hand up. Singles, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. All right, if you're engaged, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Look at you guys. Y'all are so cute. You have no clue what you're fixing to get into. <laughs> we'll pray for you. If you're married, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. If you're married, raise your hand. Let me see all my married people. Hey, she's sitting next to you. Raise that hand higher, man. Raise it up. Be proud. You're married. All right, all my, got two hands. That's what's up, my man. (laughs) All my married people. All right, all right. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. By now, everyone's hand should be up. And if your hand's not up, please do me a favor and just raise your hand. For those of you who are divorced, I want you to look around the room and I want you to know that you are not alone, that your church loves you, that your church cares for you, that we are here for you, and we've been praying for you all week long. You guys can put your hands down. If you would do me a favor and you would just give me the next 55 minutes to be your pastor and preach God's word, if you would open up your heart if you would have a humble posture to receive and to listen and to prayerfully consider the words that Jesus has to say. I would love to just be able to preach the Bible today and to be your pastor. So with that being said, the sermon title is Jesus and Divorce. We're gonna see three things. We're gonna talk about divorce, we're gonna talk about marriage, and we're gonna talk about divorce and remarriage. See, first thing we see is this, is that the Pharisees, they want to talk about divorce. Mark 10, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, important word, circle it, highlight it, we'll come back to it. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce, there's the word, his wife, And he said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Here we meet two different groups of people. We see that there are the crowds and there are the Pharisees. These are the major characters so far in the gospel of Mark. Jesus, his Gentile ministry is over. He's been up in Capernaum and the Decapolis uh, ministering to his disciples. And now he is heading towards Jerusalem, the ultimate place of his death and crucifixion. And on the way from the Decapolis to Capernaum to Jerusalem, here we see there is a pit stop in a region known as Judea. 
just outside of the River Jordan. Now, this is a highly Jewish, populated, very religious region in that area. And we see two crowds over and over again. We see crowds, we see Pharisees. Okay, first we'll look at the crowds. You need to understand that Jesus was very famous, right? Everybody was clamoring to come and know and see and want to know what is it that Jesus is going to do next. Jesus was very famous. He was very infamous. It doesn't go along with the portrait of Jesus that many of us think of. Many of us think of Jesus like an oil painting, Thomas Kincaid picture, where he's like a hippie wearing a dress, got white skin, long flowing blonde hair, doing yoga with 12 sweaty dudes. We think that's Jesus. Actually, that's not the portrait that the Bible paints of Jesus. The picture of Jesus is that he is famous. He is infamous. Great crowds show up to come and see Jesus. Sometimes upwards of 25,000 people wanting to know, what's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to do? The crowds are fascinated by Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they're actually following him. We've already seen on numerous occasions in Mark that the crowd actually turns their back on Jesus, rejects Jesus, and sometimes even criticizes Jesus. So the first thing we see, we see a great crowd. The second thing that we see is we see the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're the hardcore, devout, super-duper, fundamentalist, all-mental, no-fun religious leaders of the day. And for them, they follow what is known as the tradition of the elders. They're not in the Bible. They're extra-biblical texts created by their rabbis that enforce rules and regulations upon the crowd. And these regulations come from two different books called the Talmud and the Mishnah. And they begin to rewrite the scriptures to be able to enforce those on the crowd. This is the crowd. These are the Pharisees. And we see both show up. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus, as is his custom, he is teaching them. Now, the Pharisees are very angry at Jesus. The Pharisees are angry for two reasons. They're mad because they're losing their popularity and they're losing their power. Right? Their popularity is being lost because the crowds are following Jesus. Oh, Jesus got 25,000 followers. We only got 200. We're losing our popularity. We need to do something to stop Jesus. But they're also losing their power because the more people come and listen to Jesus, the more they're realizing that these Pharisees don't actually know what they're talking about. And so they're Pharisees, they think, we have to stop Jesus. We have to come up with some way for us to stop the ministry of Jesus. And they think, I know what I'll do. We'll test them. Here, you notice here, the Pharisees don't come to follow Jesus because they want to be ministered to. No, they come because they want to argue. They want to fight. They want to put Jesus to the test. This is a test. That's why he says they came to test him. And they think, what is the most controversial, taboo, difficult subject that we can get Jesus to preach on to turn the crowds against him? What do you think they're going to say? Divorce. See, divorce was even a sensitive subject 2,000 years ago. See, the Pharisees, they want to talk about divorce. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees, they want to talk about divorce. Now, here's one of the beautiful things about expository preaching. If you've been hanging out with us in Mark, then you might remember that in Mark chapter 6, there's a story about a man named John the Baptist being murdered. Do y'all remember that one? If you weren't here for that, you can go back and find it on our iTunes. It's called The Death of John the Baptist. Just so you know, it is a R-rated sermon, so just prepare yourselves for that one. John the Baptist was beheaded, and do you know where John was murdered at? In the region of Judea, just beyond the Jordan. There was a man named Herod the Tetrarch who was the overseeing ruler of the area. And John the Baptist, he stood up in front of him and he said this, Herod, it is not lawful for you to divorce your wife and marry another woman. And guess what Herod did? Off with his head. That was Mark 6. Here we are, Mark 10. The Pharisees come in Judea, beyond the Jordan. Jesus teaching. It is a test, but more than just a test, this is an attempt at Jesus' life. 
The Pharisees are trying to get him to say something taboo and sensitive, and they think that if the crowds turn against him, we win. If Herod kills him, we win. Either way, we win. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get Jesus to publicly teach on divorce, because why? The Pharisees want to talk about divorce. So let's do it. Let's talk about divorce. Right? Divorce in America, rampant. It's very common for a divorce. You probably think there's more divorces than there are marriages. And if you think that, it's actually true. 50% of marriages in America do end in divorce. America is the fifth highest divorce rate of any other civilized nation in the world. Divorce is rampant in America. People fall in love, get married, fall out of love, get a divorce. It is pretty much normal. I've even seen people have divorce parties. I've seen people on Facebook, they're like, woohoo, I'm free, getting a divorce. It's normal for people to get divorces. In the Reader's Digest, there is actually an, an article that you can buy a divorce ring, not a wedding ring, a divorce ring. And so then you can wear it proudly, letting the world know that you are divorced. Like, that's just becoming normal in America. And you would think that 2,000 years ago that the Jewish people, they would have such a high view of marriage. They would honor the sanctity of marriage. Of course, 2,000 years ago, everything would be perfect, right? 2,000 years ago, there was a no divorce rate. You'd think that. But actually, that's not true. In fact, first century Judaism invented what is called the no-fault divorce, First century Jewish people invented the no-fault divorce. Americans just perfected it. But they invented the no-fault divorce. In fact, divorce in their day was probably more prevalent than it is in our day. The first century Jewish historian Josephus, he writes in his book of annuals that a man could divorce his wife in Jerusalem for any and every reason. Divorce in those days was just as rampant as is, is in our day. It was the same problem. You fall in love, you get married, you fall out of love, then you get a divorce. It was commonplace it was normal. There is no difference between us and the Pharisees. 2,000 years later, we still want to talk about divorce. And so the Pharisees, they see that there's a large crowd, many of whom are working on their second marriage or their third marriage, maybe their fourth marriage, and they come up to Jesus knowing this and the popularity of divorce, and they say, let's get him to teach on something very unpopular. Let's talk about divorce. And I love what Jesus does here. They say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does Jesus do? He goes back to the Bible. He doesn't get caught up in the different traditions of the elders or the he said, she said. He goes back to the Bible and he answered them. And he says, what did Moses command you? Moses is the author of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. It's the law that governed all of Jewish life. And he says, well, what does the Bible say? What does the book of Deuteronomy say? And they say, aha, Jesus, we got you because Moses said we could do it. Moses said we could get a divorce. Moses allowed, here's what it says. I want you to look at it. Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. See, apparently, there is cause for divorce. And apparently, the Bible does allow a man to divorce his wife. Some people are like, wait, what? It does? Yeah, it does. And even Jesus affirms it here. Jesus says, yep, you're right. The Bible does say that. Some of you are shocked to hear that Jesus agrees with the Pharisees. He says, yeah, you're right. It actually does say that. And what they're quoting here is Deuteronomy 24.1. I don't have time to go into it today in detail because there's a lot of legalism that goes along with it. But let me go ahead and read to you Deuteronomy 24.1. Moses writes this. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes a certificate of divorce... And he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. She departs out of his house. So apparently there is some reason for divorce. We find it in Deuteronomy 24, and the Pharisees talk about it, and Jesus even says, yeah, actually, that's, that's in there. But let me ask you a question. When you read this, do you see any qualifiers in there? Well, no. 
Here, here's the problem, is it only says two things. It says, if a man finds no favor or any indecency in his wife. Like, what does that even mean? No favor, any indecency? That could literally mean anything, and that's exactly what the Pharisees interpreted as. The traditions of the elders said, hey, Moses didn't tell us what happened, so we're going to go ahead and fill in the blanks. And so they just came up with those no favor or any indecency might be. And there was a very popular rabbi right before Jesus comes along on the scene. His name was Rabbi Hillel. And what Rabbi Hillel would teach, and he was, you know, the very famous preacher of that day. And he would teach that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, no favor, any indecency. So if you get married, Rabbi Hillel, he actually said that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt the breakfast. Right, burning biscuits, that's a divorce. Some of us would be in like our third marriage by now. But <laughs> he said that if you burnt the breakfast, if a woman took her hair down in public, if a woman looked at another man, if she said something bad about your mom, you could divorce her. Any reason, if he found no favor in your eyes for your wife, but you found favor in somebody else's eyes, well, then you could divorce her and you could go and you could marry someone else. That's the way that they interpret it. That was normal for them. And now we read this and we hear it and we think, the Pharisees, those guys are terrible. They're horrible. They're so wicked and evil. How could they do that? But let's be honest. We are no different than the Pharisees because we do the exact same thing here in America. They might have invented no-fault divorce, but we actually, we actually perfected the no-fault divorce. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says this. He says, yeah, that is in there. Do you know why that is in there? You want to talk about divorce? Here's the reason for divorce. Here's why Moses said that. Keep reading verse 5. And Jesus said to them, why? Because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote to you this commandment. So yes, biblically, there is a cause for divorce. So you know what the cause for divorce is? Sin. It is a hardness of hearts. Do you know why people get divorced? Because of their hearts. Because their hearts become hard. Listen, people don't fall out of love. That's what we think. Oh, I fell out of love. No, no. You don't fall out of love. You fall into sin. The reason for every single divorce is a cause of sin, that you have hardened your heart towards God. You have hardened your heart towards your husband. You harden your heart towards your wife. You harden your heart towards your children, towards your marriage. You harden your heart towards the gospel. You harden your heart towards Jesus. You harden your heart so you don't listen to the Holy Spirit. You're hard your heart towards the church. The reason for sin is not because you don't, you fall out of love, but rather because you fell into sin and you harden your heart. Someone, somewhere, somehow, your heart had become hard. The cause for every single divorce, however you want to justify it, however you want to explain it, whether it's your sin or their sin, it doesn't matter. It's all because of sin and a hardness of heart. That is the cause for every divorce. It is a hardening of the hearts. Do you know what the number one cause for divorce in America is? A lack of commitment. They did a big research and they wanted to figure out what is the number one cause for divorce in America. And we would think it would be things like adultery or abuse from all the different stories that we hear, but that's actually not true. 73% of marriages in America end due to a lack of commitment. That either one or both of the people just don't want to put in the effort. They don't want to put in the time. It's too difficult. It's too much work. I don't really care. I want out. It is a lack of commitment. You know what I hear all the time is this. I deserve to be happy. They'll say things like this. I deserve better than this. I, I deserve more than this. I, I, just, I just don't want to keep doing this. And then they give up, and they give in, and then they kill the marriage, 73%. And when I hear lack of commitment, you know what I really hear? A hardness of heart. It is a hardening of the heart. You harden your heart towards your covenant. You harden your heart towards your marriage. You've hardened your heart towards your spouse, husband, wife, children. It's a hardening of the heart. That's the reason and what I've discovered is most people are like Pharisees when it comes to marriage. 
and when it comes to divorce is that most people, they're looking for a way out of the marriage. They think, well, if they do this, then I can do this. Little pharisaic loopholes. Any indecency? Well, what does that mean? There's some indecency there. And is there any no favor in another person's side? Well, what does that even mean, no favor? Because, you know, he is losing his hair and he's growing it on his back and he's put on a few pounds and she's knocked out a few kids and she's a little crazy and I don't get along with them. And there's some indecency in our marriage and there's no favor in our marriage. And if they do this, then I'm free. Most people, like the Pharisees, are looking for a way out. God's people are not looking for a way out. God's people are looking for a way to make it work. God's people are not looking for a way out. God's people are looking for a way through. Is there a way through? According to Jesus, yes. There is a way through. Listen to me. Marriage is hard. You said that way too loud, brother. But you're right, marriage is hard. And if you're always looking for a way out, trust me, you will find a way out. But if you're looking for a way through, there is a way through, and his name's Jesus. Listen to me, I sit down and do premarital counseling all the time, and I, I look at the, the, the cute couple, and they're getting engaged, and they're gonna get married, and I, I sit them down on the couch, and I look, I look them in the eye, I said, you have a perfect marriage waiting for you, and they're like, really, you think so? <laughs> I say, oh yeah, but there's two problems with this marriage. Do you know what they are? They're like, what? I said, you and you. <laughs> the husband and the wife. Take those out. You got a perfect marriage. But anytime you have two sinners in a marriage together, that doesn't cancel out sin. That creates twice as much sin. And when you have two imperfect people in a marriage together, you will not have a perfect marriage. And if you're looking for a way out, trust me, you can find a way out. But by God's grace, if you're looking for a way through, you will find a way through. Listen, marriage is hard. Marriage is tough. Marriage takes a lot of work. Marriage is one of the most difficult things that you will ever do. It's not easy for two becoming one. And you might think, I didn't sign up for this. This is difficult. That, that there's dark days, there's painful days, there's days where you don't want to keep moving forward and you don't know if it's going to work. There's days where you're fighting and you're arguing and you don't speak to each other and you're sleeping on the couch. There's days that you're going to disagree when the money is tight and you're overdue on your rent and they're trying to foreclose your house and now she's pregnant. You're trying to figure out who's going to pick up the kids and your boss keeps calling and you're working seven tens and she's a stay-at-home mom and you're just basically roommates and you're no longer soulmates and she's pregnant and you're trying to figure out how we're going to pay for this. The hormones are crazy. Now you're her enemy. You forgot your daughter picking up from daycare and you don't know what you're going to do. And it's a fight and it's a battle. And every day just feels like you're climbing up a hill. It's hard. And if you're looking for a way out, you will find a way out. And you think, oh, well, my marriage day was amazing. The wedding day was amazing. The wedding day is the least important day of your marriage. The most important day of your marriage is the day that it ends. Is it going to end in a courtroom or a funeral home? That's your choice. It is hard. It is difficult. And if you're looking for a way out, there is a way out. But if you're wanting to find a way through, there is a way through. And his name is Jesus. Listen to me. This may not be the sermon that you wanted. It's 2020. You didn't wake up this morning and think it's a new year. I'm going to go to church and I can't wait to hear what the pastor is going to say. And then you come here and he's preaching on divorce. This may not be the sermon that you wanted, but God knew in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and his providence that if you're listening to this, this is the sermon that he has for you. This may not be what you wanted, but for many of you, this is what you need. Because you come here today and you don't know if you can make it through. You come here today and you're thinking, it's a new year. Do I want to put up with this for another year? Can I do this for another decade? Are we going to make it till death do us part? I don't know if I want to keep doing this anymore. And you come here and maybe divorce was even mentioned in your home this week. Maybe you were fighting and you might not have said it, but you were laying in bed and you were thinking, God, if, if I could just get out of this. 
and you come here today and God graciously brought you here because he wants you to know that there is a way to make it work. And here's how. Don't kill the marriage. Kill the sin. It's sin that causes divorce. And so there must be some sin in there. And what God wants you to know is don't don't kill the marriage, kill the sin. If you can give your life to Jesus, you can give your marriage to Jesus. If you can trust Jesus with your soul, you can trust Jesus with your spouse. If you can trust Jesus with your life, you can trust Jesus with your wife. If you can trust Jesus with your heart, you can trust Jesus with your husband. If the power of the gospel is strong enough to raise Jesus from the dead, the power of the gospel is strong enough to breathe life into that dead marriage and resurrect it back into new life to where you can have a new marriage with your same spouse. It is possible. Just don't kill the marriage. Kill the sin. If you're here today and you're listening to this and you're considering and contemplating divorce, what I want you to do today is I want you to make a beeline at the end of the sermon to this prayer team and I want you to hit your knees. Men, pray for your wives. Wives, pray with your husbands. Hit your knees and confess your sins before the Lord to save your marriage. Don't kill the marriage, kill the sin. And inevitably what happens is this. Conversations like this come up and many people begin thinking, and some of you are thinking right now, but you don't know my life, you don't know my story, you don't know what I've been through, you don't know what I'm going through. And you know what, I don't know. But here's what I do know, is that every divorce is a result of sin. And so somewhere inside, there is sin in there. You're not going to find two people who are loving, being holy with Jesus, who are decided, you know what? We prayed about it. We're so great. We want to get a divorce. You're not going to hear that. There is sin somewhere inside of there. And, And here's also what I do know is this, is that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. I mean, he even says this in Malachi 2.16. There's a story in the book of Malachi, which is actually the prequel to the Gospel of Mark. It's the final book to be written of the Old Testament. And the men of the Jewish region, they're basically treating their wives very harshly. They're marrying women, and then they're divorcing them after violence and sexual immorality and lust and all these different reasons. They're being very harsh towards their wives, and they're crying out, and God is not answering their prayers. And so then they cry out and say, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? He says, here's the reason why I don't answer prayers, because you broke your covenant with your wife. And then he says this. He says in Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel. God hates divorce. He hates it. And you know what? I hate divorce. And people who have been divorced, they will tell you they hate divorce as well. You can ask any person in this room who grew up in a broken home watching their parents get divorced, and even children hate divorce. There is no one who says that they appreciate or love. There's no one because it's always a painful thing. It's always a difficult thing. It hurts, and the reason that God hates divorce is because divorce hurts. Divorce hurts everyone. Divorce hurts the man. Divorce hurts the women. Divorce hurts the children. The other day, I was going to buy groceries at Kroger, and there was a, a custody exchange happening in the parking lot. And then there was a man and a woman screaming at each other at the top of their lungs while the kids ran to get in the backseat of the car while crying. You can't tell me that's a good thing. You can't tell me that's God's plan for those kids' lives. It hurts. And the reason that God hates it is not because he hates you. It's because he hates how much it hurts you. That it tears everything apart. John Piper, in his book, This Momentary Marriage, he, he says that, that divorce is more painful than death. Because at least in death, you get to bury the body, but with the divorce you carried on your shoulders for the rest of your life. The scars, the wounds, the corpse of the divorce follows you everywhere that you go. 
Relationships are strained. Families are strained. Finances are strained. Custody battles and lawyers get involved. And there's visitations and nights and weekends. And if you have children or even grandchildren, you're never really separated. You're just living separated forever. It hurts. And the reason that God hates divorce is not because he hates you, but because he hates how much it hurts you. And so if at all possible that you come here today, don't look for a way out. Look for a way through. But tragically, sometimes there is no way through. We are not a church that says there is never any justifiable reasons for divorce. Sometimes there's biblical reasons for divorce. And I would say if you can find it in your heart to forgive, then you should do that. But if through sin and through hard-heartedness, you reach a point to where there is no other option, divorce occasionally, unlimited circumstances, is biblical. So I want to give you five reasons for biblical divorce. And as I say this, I don't want you to think like a Pharisee. Oh, look, there's my, there's my out. I want you to think about this from God's perspective, that these are people that he loves and cares for who are going through the most painful situation they will ever experience. It's the five biblical reasons for divorce. Outside of these, you have no grounds for divorce. Here's the first one is this, death. And no, that doesn't mean you can murder them. (laughs) That's not called divorce, that's called murder. Uh, They asked uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, they said, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? And she says, no, but I have thought about killing him a time or two. Oh, a little humor helps the medicine go down. Um, If your spouse dies, then you're free from the marriage. So that's not divorce, but it does free from the marriage. The second reason is adultery. This is Matthew 5. Uh, This is if somebody breaks the marriage covenant by, by committing adultery, by cheating on their spouse. If that's the case, then they're free. They're free from the marriage. They've broken the covenant. So through cheating on a spouse, that is biblical grounds for divorce. The second is what is called sexual immorality. Matthew 19, in Mark's parallel account, in Matthew 19, um, Jesus says the exception clause, which is sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. It's where we get the term pornography. Now, when you go on a porn site and you type in porn, and you, what shows up on the pornography website? Everything. That's what pornea is, everything, right? So you think, well, you already hit adultery, so why does it say sexual morality? Because this is actually other things than sexual, than adultery. Because some people say, but I didn't cheat. No, but you committed pornea, you committed sexual immorality. So this includes things like a chronic masturbation, addiction to pornography. This includes voyeurism, exhibitionism, whatever it is, uh, rape, incest, bestiality, pedophilia. I knew one guy who actually got arrested for putting security cameras in women's bathrooms and recording them on his phone. You know, he would say, oh, but I didn't cheat on her. No, but you committed pornea. She has a right to divorce you because you, you committed pornea. That's sexual immorality. You know, sometimes people just get tired of taking STD tests in their marriage, and they have a right, and there's a biblical grounds for divorce through adultery, through sexual immorality, and also due to abandonment. I know a guy who he showed up from work one day, loved Jesus. He was a good husband. He was a good man. And he showed up, and there was a note on the counter that says, I want a divorce. And all of his wife's stuff was out of the house. He had no clue it was even coming. She abandoned him. She just woke up one morning and decided, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be married. I deserve better, and she's gone. He didn't see him until the court date. Right? It's hard to be married to somebody whenever they live in another state. That's abandonment. According to 1 Corinthians 7, he's free from the marriage. Also, know another woman who she met Jesus and she's grown in her faith and her husband's still a drug addict. He got arrested for possession of crystal meth, spent you know, 10 years in prison. He abandoned her criminally. 
So she is free to divorce in that case. So there is abandonment. And then lastly, there is abuse. In Malachi 2, the situation here is abuse. When you read through the section at the end, it says the man who divorces his wife is due to violence and he is guilty of treachery for abusing the women in his life. Ladies, if you're in a home where a man is physically abusive to you or towards your children, if he raises his hand, if he hits you, there is what John Piper calls a redemptive separation. Get out of the house. Call the police. Call your parents. Stay with them. Get the kids as far away from him as possible. Call your pastor. Do whatever you can. Get separation between them. Get the help you need. No woman should ever live in a home with an abusive man. And yes, this includes marital rape as well, because that is a thing. You say, well, she married me. Yeah, but you're supposed to love and protect and cherish her, not abuse her or the children. So yeah, there are some times where divorce tragically is an option. But I want you to hear these. These are broken people who are going through the most difficult time in their life. It is not something for us to find pharisaic loopholes to find a way out. These are hurting and broken people who are suffering. And just because you don't feel like it anymore is not biblical grounds. That is sin, a hardness of heart, a lack of commitment. And if you don't meet these qualifications, you have no right to divorce. Anything outside of this is sin, and it's a hardness of heart. And Jesus calls it as it is. He says, the reason Moses would let you do that is because you have sin and a hardening of heart. Every divorce is a result of sin. So if you're hearing me today and you hear this, could you please just do me a favor? If at all possible, if there is a way through, there is a way through, and his name is Jesus. Jesus wants to resurrect your marriage. Don't kill your spouse. Don't kill the marriage. Kill the sin. And let Jesus raise that marriage back to new life. See, the Pharisees want to talk about divorce. But Jesus wants to talk about marriage. Here's what Jesus does in verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I was thinking about it this week, and I was wondering, how come Jesus doesn't do the pharisaical loopholes? How come Jesus doesn't list the five reasons and go back to Rabbi Hillel? How come Jesus doesn't do that? And here's what I realized, is that Jesus doesn't want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage. And Jesus skips over Moses, goes all the way back to Genesis because he wants to teach them the true meaning of marriage, the way that God always wanted, the way that God always intended. Instead of talking about divorce, Jesus, he instead talks about marriage. The best way for you to prevent divorce is to have God's plan for your marriage. Right, men, how many of you heard the saying, the best defense is a good offense? You ever heard that? Okay, that's basically what Jesus is saying here. Right, the best defense against divorce is to have a good offense for your marriage. The best way to prevent divorce is to have God's plan for your marriage. I think one of the reasons the divorce rate in America is so high is because our view of marriage is actually so low. That many of us, we think that marriage is a vehicle for our own happiness or our own satisfaction. That they do this, and I like that, and they do this, and I enjoy that, and I'll do this, and I'll put up with that, and oh yeah, let's just go ahead and get married. It's a vehicle for your own satisfaction. That's the way that most people view marriage. This is what's known as a contractual marriage. Okay, this arose in popularity in the 1800s with something known as the philosophy of the Enlightenment period. Just so you know, this is the way most Americans view marriage. It's what's called a contractual marriage. America is a ex social experiment by the Enlightenment period, just to see how all of this works. And we still don't know how the experiment's turning out. But one thing is this, is they believed in what was called a contractual marriage. Here's what it means. A mutual agreement between two people with an exchange of goods and services based upon one's satisfaction. 
So I like this, I like that, I don't like this, but I think I can put up with that for a little bit longer. And then you get married, and then if you don't like it, eventually you can get a divorce. And people are like, oh, but I deserve to be happy. I want to be happy. Oh, this person makes me happy. And then they divorce one spouse, and they jump over, and they marry another spouse. This is what's known as a contractual marriage. This is the way most people see it. It's also very similar to like an iPhone, okay? So here's what I have. I have a T-Mobile iPhone 11. Right. Originally, I had a service uh, with AT&T, and I didn't really enjoy AT&T because, well, they didn't let me get upgrades on my phone, and my bill was kind of expensive, and T-Mobile had a really good deal going on. So I switched from AT&T to T-Mobile, signed up. Oh, I got a great plan. Right, they cut my bill in half. The service was not very good, but you know, what the heck, I could put up with that for the new iPhone. And so I switched from AT&T to T-Mobile, but after four years, well, I don't know, like I missed a payment and my bill doubled and now we got to add an you know, Apple Watch and the AirPods and everything's adding up. And well, Verizon came along and said that they would actually pay off my old debt and I would get the brand new iPhone 11 for both me and my wife. And so I think I'm actually about to divorce T-Mobile and switch to Verizon. Hello, Verizon. Okay, you know what that is? That's contractual obligations. That's the way that a lot of people view marriage. They, they see it in a very similar way. It's a contractual marriage, but that's not the way that the Bible presents marriage. The Bible doesn't view it as a contract. Instead, the Bible views it as a a covenant. See, a contractual marriage is based on one's satisfaction. A covenant marriage is based on one's sacrifice. That a mutual agreement between two people with an exchange of obligations, not goods and services, obligations and privileges based upon one's sacrifice. This is what's known as the covenant. In the Old Testament, the word covenant is hased, which means the loving kindness, the unending mercy, the loyalty, the commitment of God. It is the covenant. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible, read it to our daughters. Here's the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible defines the covenant. The never ending, the never stopping, the unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's the covenant. I read this to one young woman who uh, was up at the office this week at the church, and as I read it to her, she began crying. And she was like, I wish that kind of love was real. And the truth is, it is real. His name is Jesus. And this is the way that God loves us. The way that God enters into relationship with his people is what is known as a covenant, The first covenant God made was with Adam and Eve. The last covenant that God made was with you and me through Jesus. That Jesus is the new covenant. Every time we take communion as a church, we're remembering the new covenant of his blood. His broken body shed blood in our place. His sacrifice for us. That Jesus gives his life for us. That he humbly leaves heaven, enters into this world to live the perfect life. The life we never could live. To die the death, the death that all of us deserve. To sacrifice himself in our place for our sins. Why? So we could be in relationship with him. All that is is the covenant. And so when Jesus says, I love you, he means it. When Jesus says he saves you, he means it. When Jesus says he'll never leave you, never forsake you, never abandon you, he means it because Jesus is the never ending, the never stopping, the never giving up, the unbreakable, the always and forever kind of love. That's Jesus. That's the covenant, which means your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is really about him. That is the covenant. That marriage is about Jesus, and Jesus teaches them the meaning of marriage, and he goes all the way back to the very beginning. He teaches them the way that God always planned it for marriage to be, and he's going to teach us four marriage truths. The first thing is that marriage is God's design. He says, from the beginning of creation, marriage is God's design. How many of you have been told that marriage was a man-made institution? You ever heard that? Marriage is a man-made institution. Hey, not true. From the beginning. It's a long time ago. Hey, God designed marriage. Some people say, oh, well, it's man-made. No, if man made marriage, here's the way man would do it. He would have taken Adam and placed him in a garden as an eligible bachelor with 30 beautiful exotic women around him. <laughs> 
for him to date and kiss and sleep with, and maybe after 14 episodes, he'd offer one a rose. God didn't make a bachelor. God made a man. Some of you guys are still bachelors because you're not men. Marriage is for men. Be a man. God made a man. This is God's, this is God's design. God invented marriage. God made up marriage. God had a plan for marriage. God wanted marriage. God made marriage. It was God's design. The second thing is marriage is defined by God. It's God's design, therefore it's God defined. He says this, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. This is the definition of marriage. One man, one woman in the covenant together for life. That's marriage. No matter what your sociology professor Lamar told you, no matter what Hollywood tells you, no matter what you see on the Golden Globes, no matter what's popular, this is what marriage is. One man, one woman. From the beginning, it was God's design, therefore it's God defined. If man doesn't design marriage, man has no right to redefine marriage. There is no such thing as the redefinition of marriage. You can't redefine something that you did not create nor define. You can't do it. One man, one woman, in the covenant, for life. That's marriage. It's God designed, it is God defined. The next thing is, it's a display of God's glory. This is why he says, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. Marriage is to display God's glory. That that word there, hold fast, what it means is to cling to, to cleave to, that two actually become one, that the bond between two people are so inseparable that you cannot remove it without destroying it. That is to display God's glory. And here's the reason why. It's because marriage was the first prophetic act that God ever did. Before God did anything in the world, the first thing he did was officiate the wedding of Adam and Eve. Seven days of creation, he got finished making it, he woke up after the Sabbath, and he performed a wedding. And here's the reason why. Because it was a prophetic display of the gospel. That it was a pronouncement of the gospel. That in the same way that a husband is to love his wife, it's the same way that Jesus loves us as the church. This is why the Apostle Paul picks it up in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, quoting Jesus that a husband will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. The way that Jesus loves the church is the way that a man is supposed to love a woman. That it is supposed to be a man laying down his life, sacrificing his life, humbly leading and serving and giving himself to his wife and sacrificing of everything he has for her flourishing and for her good. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And the way that the church loves Jesus is the way that a woman is supposed to love and submit and respect and to bless and to pray for her husband. It's a portrait. It's a prophetic declaration of the glory of God, that God would love us like this, and the marriage is not so much about your love, but it's about telling the story of God's love to the world. It's a prophetic display of the glory of God, which leads to the next. It's actually God's doing. People often wonder, they say, did I marry the right person? Normally, people don't wonder if they're the right person. <laughs> you say, did I marry the right person? If their name is on the marriage certificate, then they're the right person for you. He says this, he says, what God has joined together, it's God's doing, let not man separate. That God is the glue that holds it together. That God is the bond that makes it one. That God is the one who signed your marriage certificate. Doesn't matter if a judge did, God did. Doesn't matter if I officiate your wedding or not, God is the officiator of your wedding. He is the one who signed the covenant. He is the one who is watching over you. He is the one who has joined you together. And if God joined you together, you have no right to separate it. Because your marriage does not belong to you. Your marriage is about him. 
See, that's why most people get divorced is because they have a low view of marriage. They think marriage is about their happiness when marriage is really about your holiness. They think marriage is about your satisfaction. No, 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 no. Marriage is about sacrifice. It's about how Jesus sacrificed himself for the church and that we are to sacrifice ourselves for the betterment and the flourishing and the good for one another. It's about laying down your life for the other person. This is the high view of marriage. This is the reason why some people don't even need to get married because they can't do this. And you would say, well, that sounds impossible. That's the same thing that the disciples said in Matthew 19. When they hear what Jesus teaches about marriage, they say, that's impossible. In this way, no one should get married. Jesus says, yeah, actually, you're right. Let the one who receives it receive it. See, many people have a low view of marriage, and that's why we have such a high view of divorce. But this is the way that God intended marriage to always be. The best way to prevent divorce is to have God's plan for your marriage. Now, how many of you have been told that 50% of marriages end in divorce? You know that? I said it earlier. I kind of lied to you. It's actually not true. That 50% of American marriages end in divorce, but not Christian marriages. There's a researcher, his name's Bradford Wilcox. He wrote a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men. Highly recommend it. He is a leading researcher on religion in America out of the University of Virginia. And as far as I can tell, he is not a Christian. Maybe he is. We should pray for him. But he was doing a big national survey on divorce and relationships. And he said 50% end in divorce. 41% first marriages, 61% of second marriages, 73% of third marriages do end in divorce. But there was one outlier in all of his research. You know what it was? Christian marriages. More than that, covenantal marriages. And so in his research, he wrote and he discovered that Christian marriages only divorce 15% of the time. National average of 50%, Christian marriages, 15. You say, well, what's the difference? He found three things. First thing is this. If you want to save your marriage, here's what Wilcox will tell you. The man needs to be in church. I don't know why, but it's the man. If the man is in church with his family, 91% of the time, the women and children will go to church. But if the man doesn't go to church, I think the number drops down to like 28% of the time, the women and children will stay home as well. He said, if you want to cut your divorce rate down by 30%, do this. Just get your husband to church. Men, bring your wives and children to church. Men, if you're here today, the best investment you will ever make in your marriage is to become a member and to serve and to give and to lovingly, humbly leading your women and your wives and your children to church. It's the best thing you can do. Statistically, that's the truth. The second thing is have shared theological values. So if you believe the same thing, read the Bible together. Couples who do not have the same religion, they have a divorce rate of 127%. This is why I tell you all the time, if you are a Christian, do not date a non-Christian because it's not gonna end well for you. You're like, I can save him, I can change him. No, you can't. You're not, it's not gonna happen. Listen to me. You're like, well, we really get along. We have different religions, but we can see eye to eye. No, you won't. You'll see eye to eye in front of a judge. 127% get divorced. They're the highest divorce rate in America is people who do not have the same belief system. 100% is a guarantee. 127%, that's suicide for your marriage. Don't do it. That you would go to church together, you would read the Bible together, and then number three, apparently, couples who pray together really do stay together. And here's what he discovered. Mind-blowing. Christian marriages across America, best marriages in America. The best marriages in America. Actually, women who are in Christian marriages report higher marital satisfaction, greater sexual pleasure, and they are more free when it comes to raising their kids, and they're just all-around happier people. You know why that is? Because God's way still works. God's way still works. You want to prevent divorce? Have God's plan for your marriage. You want to save your marriage? Let God save your marriage. That's the best way because that's God's way. And here's what we learned is that when it comes to marriage, Jesus wants you to know his way still works. 
This is the way it's been. This is the way it's always been. And this is what he wants for you. Jesus wants to talk about your marriage. And if I could end my sermon right there, it'd be amazing. But the disciples now have a question. Because now the disciples want to talk about divorce and remarriage. If I could end my sermon there, it would be great, but I have to actually preach the Bible. So, which means this is good for us. And in the house, the disciples asked him, they said, about this matter, and they said to him, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The disciples ask a question. There we go. Love the disciples. Which means that if the disciples ask the question, then many of you in this room as disciples of Jesus are probably asking that very same question, so we need to talk about it. Jesus is the most kind, most gracious, most loving, most compassionate man who has ever lived. But he's also the most honest and the most true and the most wise. And here's what Jesus says. Any man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And so people are wondering, what does that mean for me? I've been praying about this all week long because I know there's many of you in the room and you're in this exact same situation. Divorced, looking to get remarried, or maybe you're already remarried. And you're wondering, well, what does the Bible say about me? I've read many books. I've sought many commentaries, theologians, and authors. And here's the best answer I can give you. I don't know. Men I respect disagree with one another, and maybe the me in 10 years will look back and disagree with this. But here's what I can tell you, is I will preach the conviction of marriage with the compassion of tears when it comes to divorce. I will not minimize divorce to maximize marriage, and I will not minimize your obedience to the scriptures based upon your experiences in life. On one hand, I don't want to be a Pharisee and say, oh, well, anybody can get divorced. It's no big deal. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Third time's a charm. I don't want to do that because that means that there is some sin in your life that is leading to these actions. And there is no way around it. Straight up, Jesus calls it adultery. I can't do enough hermeneutical gymnastics to call it something else. It is. On the other hand, I know that this isn't math. This is life. And I can't just do one plus one equals two because sometimes there are variables involved. But I do know this, every divorce is a result of sin somewhere. And so what I can tell you is divorce, adultery, and remarriage, they are not the unforgivable sins. The unforgivable sin is, according to Mark 6, Jesus told the Pharisees this, they said it is your heart of heart the unwillingness to listen to the spirit, to submit to the scriptures and repent. That is the unforgivable sin. Living with a blasphemous heart towards the leading of the spirit in your life. And if you're coming here and you're hearing this with a hard heart and you're unrepentant, you're in a dangerous place. That's what I do now. But adultery, divorce, Remarriage is not the unforgivable sin. So here's what I would tell you. If you're here and you are divorced and you're contemplating remarriage, my advice to you is this. Don't do it. At least not yet. Not until you go through freedom class. Not until you're emotionally healed. Not until you've gone through licensed professional counseling. You've sought help. You've got wisdom from your pastors and your community group. Hit the brakes. Check your heart. And if you are here and you're remarried already, here's my best advice to you. Repent to your spouse. Let them pray with you and forgive you. And get up, stay married to your current spouse, and have God's plan and don't do it again. It's the best advice I can give you. And that's all I know. So my time is up. It's been 55 minutes since I began. So here's what I want to do to close. I love being your pastor, and I love being able to preach the Bible. So thank you so much for letting me preach the Bible. I love being a part of a church where we're not shying away from hard things or difficult things. 
I love being a part of a church that is willing to listen to God's word and then to apply it to our lives. So here's what I want to do. If you're here and you are single, can you do me a favor? Raise your hand. Where are my single people at? If you're not ready to get married, you're not ready to date. Christians don't date for fun, we date for a future. And if you're with someone and you think, well, they're fun, but you see no future, there will be no fun in your future. Don't waste their time. If you're a man and you're here and you're dating a girl, you have no intention to marry, be a man, take responsibility and break up with her. Don't treat women like that. If you're engaged, raise your hand. Singles, keep your hand up. (laughs) Unless you're not single anymore. (laughs) If you're engaged, get in premarital counseling. Get in a community group. Surround yourself with older, godly, wiser women and men who can speak into your life. If you're married, raise your hand. Now I want you to hold your spouse's hand. Hold fast to your wife. Men, hold fast to your wives. Cling to your wife. Cleave to your wife. Hold fast to her. Love her the way that Jesus loves the church. Men, cling to your wives. You keep your hands raised, holding their hand. For those who are divorced, I want you to look around and I want you to know that your church loves you and you are not alone and God has never given up on you and he has brought you here because Redemption Church loves you. And God has never given up on you because God is the unbreakable, the never-ending, the always and forever love that is his covenant to you. You are not forsaken. You are not abandoned. You are not alone. He loves you. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.